This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. Udo Dahmen is an absolute giant in the history of German music. And while that statement carries a slight tinge of controversy that is completely on brand with his persona, the one fact that remains irrefutable is the manner in which he's managed to keep that one part of him alive over the decades, despite being on the very top of the arts ecosystem in a fashion that's extraordinarily rare for those who occupy space as far up the artist. Pioneering music educator for many, celebrated drummer for others, apart from all this and other accolades he brushes off, for me he'll always be the mentor who managed to convince me of my disillusioned worst that I could in fact finish a degree and the guy who gave up his first class compartment seat to come hang with me in a cramped cabin out in the back after a 14 hour day as he watched me drop half my burger all over it amidst my over enthusiastic banter on the future of global music as is officially the motto now for this podcast this conversation speaks for itself so without much further ado please welcome professor udo Daman. before we go ahead though please remember that this is a solopreneur independent production so if you want to support it, please consider doing so by following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're feeling particularly generous, go give us a review. Additionally, share this episode on your IG stories, social media, at all. And now, Professor Udo Damen. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. Officially rolling on both sides. I have an analog and a digital recording system running. Mr. Udo Daman, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, well, TL. I'm really happy that we can do this together. I am so happy as well. Um, you're making a dream come true. I've always wanted to have you on this podcast for a while now. You've been a mentor and inspiration. And uh, well, there's no way I can actually use words to kind of summarize the influence you've had on my life. Uh, we both know that. But I did want to really put it out there for the world to know about. Wonderful. Let's go into the questions. Absolutely. Just FYI, I try and keep this as conversational as I can, especially since a lot of my guests, like you, have are so sick of interviews. I don't want to come across as a music journalist. That's not who I am. I try and find a different angle that I've always found very interesting and has a personal link to it. In your case, your legacy and uh, your uh, remarkable career is public knowledge there's not a lot i can really expand upon there what i'm personally super curious about is where your journey started what is your earliest memory of music udo my earliest memory is i was maybe six or seven sitting sunday mornings in my bed putting kind of cans in my bed and and passioning around on it you know like and trying to find some melodies out of, out of those cans. My, my father played guitar a little bit, but my, but my family is not into music as uh, I did it later on. And this is my first memory. The second one is when I started playing guitar when I was 14 and trying to banging around uh, uh, to Rolling Stones records and awesome. so on. 
Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was a guitarist in my class, actually. Huh. And uh, in the breaks, we had, a, I was really banging on the desk, and everybody said, You should play drums. And uh, that's when I actually started playing drums. I was pretty old, actually. I was nearly 16. Huh. And this was my very, very first band. And then I, you know, I made a career from having a small drum kit in the third floor apartment of my parents and the neighbors coming in after I set it up and played for like a quarter of an hour and everybody was like, it's too loud. And then I found out I could play in a band and I started to play in that band. And within one year, I had four out of five bands playing with, uh, and I didn't know why. It just happened. Actually, I could play Wipe Out in those years. Wipe Out is a very old uh, West Coast surf tune uh, from the 60s, Ricky Nelson tune. Yeah. I could play the drum solo, actually, and uh, so I, I got the job. Amazing. My hometown is Aachen, Aix-la-Chapelle, the most Western city in Germany, actually. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Kind of two years later, uh, I was in the best band in the city. Wow, that was quick. Yeah, it was very Wow. You know, like, and I played in this band, which you would call an independent band these days. It was called Rufus Zufall. It's one of the very early crowd rock bands. And the first album we did, we did by ourselves, <laughs> folding the covers for the, the album. You know, it was just 1,500 pieces uh, we had, and we sold them within two weeks or something like that. Then the second album already was a major deal. Wow. And I was kind of 19 then. I actually came from rock and roll, progressive rock. This was my, my first love, actually. And from then on, classical percussion. We are talking about 69, 70. It's very long ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to study just one year later and uh, study classical percussion and played in the orchestra for four years. But I always played in bands. And uh, yeah, to make a long story short, I m made it to a lot of different jazz bands then in the 70s and uh, changed my playing from rock and roll to jazz and again back to rock and roll in the end of the 70s because I found out for myself I love jazz I love playing jazz mm -hmm. but I, I don't like the audience <laughs> yeah I, I know exactly what you mean you know what I mean you know I, absolutely yes what you call in German the jazz polizei oh, or yeah. the jazz police <laughs> you know what I mean Everybody knows horror. I'm arrested on a regular basis. So, yes, I've spent a lot of time in jazz jail. <laughs> <laughs> All the talks about, you know, how you should play out and why you should more listen to the old guys. Or, you know, it's great. But on the other hand, I, I, I was bored after a while because mm -hmm. I wanted to do some, something I feel and I think should be there, not what other people think things should be there so good and then i came back to kind of a crossover within the scene which was the band Kran, and the rest is history from then on so to answer your question my very early days was really rock and roll and krautrock that is so amazing i want to rewind very quickly to something you started off saying in the very beginning when you were bashing your pots and pans at home 
Um, I, I remember the one thing which really struck me is you say you were trying to play melodies. I think that speaks a lot about you as a musician, the very fact that you went straight for the crux of music. You weren't making noise, you were trying to play melody. Um, that for me is the mark of a true musician. Do you know why you were different in that way? Because you clearly were. Because a lot of kids bash around pots and pans. They don't try and play melodies. Where do you think was the difference? Yeah, you know, overall, it, it was more the, in, in a sense, developing something mm -hmm. to, to develop a song or certain sounds. And this was also actually when I remember how I started playing drums. It was less uh, the grooves and more the melodies in terms of using mm. the tom-toms and so on. I found this really interesting. This is kind of maybe I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And later on, I learned that there is a groove between bass drum, snare mm -hmm. drum and hi-hat, for instance. And this was in the very early days of soul music. This is also interesting because if you go back to the... 66, 67, 68. Wow. You can't imagine how it worked. You know, there were clubs. They were all dance clubs, actually. And at the same time, they played on one hand prog rock, the rock music of the day and soul music in one club. Amazing. And music changed, like from Otis Redding to Deep Purple or, or Manfred Mann or whatever you could think. And this was pretty normal in those days. Oh, I miss, I miss that era. Or listen at the same time to Led Zepp, Pink Floyd and, and Aretha Franklin. You know, in, this could happen within a quarter of an hour in those clubs and everybody was dancing. And this was pretty normal, actually. And nowadays, this would be totally separated. The musicians, if we played covers, we had to play at the same time soul music and Jimi Hendrix. Mm. I had a band. We, had, we we played soul tunes and Hendrix tunes and cream tunes. From this was pretty normal. It's so interesting you say that. On one hand, in the live music industry, everything's niched down so extremely. On the other hand, this old Spotify post-genre thing, the playlists are kind of similar. Sometimes you'll find people just putting in a whole bunch of different influences together, which maybe 10 years back wouldn't have belonged together. Do you see a, some sort of digital revival of those times in a way, or do you think I'm projecting here? As we all know, there are always waves every decade or like every seven to 10 years have a certain focus on certain musics, but the other musics are also there. Mm -hmm. So you always have certain waves on certain kind of styles. Mm. The rock music in the 60s, we call this beat music. Mm -hmm. Bands like the Yardbirds or the Rolling Stones, they were kind of, uh, in German, you would say Bürgerschreck. So people who were kind of subculture in, mm. in the very first years. And then nowadays the Rolling Stones are totally mainstream, as we all know. But this started as youth culture. And their followers were the punk players in the end of the 70s, starting in 75, 76 with the Ramones and so on. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. Fascinating. And then you have the grunge guys rooted within the punk movement, actually. There you go. Every 10 years, you have quasi similar things going on. Yeah. But nowadays, popular music had so different sources mm -hmm. back to the 50s and 60s. It's a parallel development from different 
styles. And this is for younger people maybe confusing sometimes or very clear because mm. I remember when I was 14, mm -hmm. the Rolling Stones or the Beatles were in their first albums. These were cover albums. The first Beatles, album, I think they had four originals on there and the rest were covers. And they were all covers from the 50s from rock and roll stars. And the Rolling Stones played mainly okay. covers of the blues giants of the 50s, like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and so on. Amazing. That is some legit history being dropped here. Thank you so much for sharing that. After all this street cred you'd already gathered by the time you were a young adult, do you remember how you felt once you landed at the music university? That must have been quite a different world. You know, in those years, we grew up with parents who were strongly mm -hmm. involved in any way you could think of in the Nazi times. Wow. The elder generation, the teachers, mm -hmm. the grandparents, maybe the parents were involved in one case or another. Wow. In the end of the 50s and in the beginning of the 60s, it was kind of, it never happened. Mm -hmm. And we were the generation talking about this and saying, what was there? Where were you? What did you do? Or what did you not do? Wow. And, and so on. Mm -hmm. It was in the families, very personal, but also within society. Mm -hmm. There were demonstrations in the end of the 60s, 68, Paris, Berlin, and so on. And in my hometown, which is a, mm -hmm. actually a university city, 30% of the inhabitants are students. Wow. So there were big riots and demonstrations in 68, 67, and 69. Mm -hmm. I was part of that because we asked, what can we do? And how can we set up this country differently, mm. more honestly? And so music was a very important part of that. Mm -hmm. On one hand, in terms of subculture, Mm. which had, hadn't the name subculture in those years. The name derived from the 67 movement in San Francisco, Summer of Love and so on. But we were kind of mm. part of that. On one hand, Summer of Love, the hippie movement. Mm. And on the other hand, we are against wars, against Vietnam in those days and against anything that the older generation set as standards we are not believing in. Wow. But what a baggage to bear. It must have been brutal. It's, I mean, I can't imagine how, what a struggle it might have felt like for your generation. It was a struggle. I can tell you, if you were the one who wore his hair longer than the normal soldier, you had trouble in school. Wow. I know I was in trouble, actually, because my teacher, my math teacher told me, if you look like that, you won't get a degree. <laughs> wow. It was very hard. Nowadays, it wouldn't be possible that any teacher could say something like that. I wonder if your math teacher knows you're a professor today <laughs> and one of the most important ones in the country. Yes, but I can tell you, I remember this really strongly. And uh, mm -hmm. I actually had to change my school career because of that. I can imagine. And it worked out very well in the end. But... Uh, and I was not the only one. There were a lot of people had problems like that. I believe you, yes. The whole student revolution and movement in those years is understandable, uh, an atmosphere like that. Mm. And also subculture as movement. 
how we call it now, this independent uh, musicians, mm-hmm. has its roots there in the 60s. I believe you. Yeah, the interesting thing was that the beat musicians who were kind of still lovely guys, uh, looking great, having great suits, and singing about love and the girlfriend, and things were changing. Mm-hmm. And we could see it with the Beatles when mm-hmm. they started to change their lyrics to... If you remember Nowhere Man, yeah. to more political or philosophical topics. Mm-hmm. And they were not the only ones. So things were changing rapidly within two or three years, mm-hmm. including uh, the, the uh, very first festivals, uh, in the, uh, open air festivals in those years in the San Francisco area. And uh, a lot of bands, let's remember Grateful Dead, for instance. Oh, I love them. All these things that were happening, which were called progressive rock coming from UK mainly, but also from the continent, like bands like Gong or Magma from France, or in Germany, the the very first crowd rock bands like Cannes uh, or Amondule and so on, Mm -hmm. strongly based on improvisation, and also on electronics, very basic electronics in the first years, as we all know. And uh, this was part of it. And also having different kind of music involved in their own music. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you would talk about cultural appropriation. But in those years, as we remember the Beatles Revolver, mm-hmm. Ravi Shankar yeah. on a Beatles album. Yes, of course. That was the beginning of a very interesting part of history. It was just about... We are very, very uh, interested in a lot of different things and and a lot of different cultures. Yeah. And this was Mm -hmm. part of it, not only in terms of Indian music, also in terms of African music, in terms of folk music, Irish music, Scottish music, also American country music, because... When you listen to Grateful Dead from San Francisco, sometimes it's, it's like a country band or bands like The Birds uh, or Crosby's Nash and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's, well, these were all part of it. And also bands like progressive rock bands like King Crimson and so on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting, the whole cultural appropriation uh, theme. It's, you know, there's so much that is bypassed. Yeah. It was a very different time. The context was completely different. That's for sure. This is another topic we could talk about. It was more about the curiousness about other cultures and going there and listen to the to people to learn about it uh, and to go to Chennai or Calcutta to learn about North and South Indian music and so on and so on, what George Harrison actually did. It was also a step in the right direction for the time. You know, it was exact. These were people who were actually trying to integrate other influences, mm-hmm. trying to expose the world to other cultures. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole different topic. Maybe you can address it later on. But I am curious. To, correct me if I'm wrong, Udo. You also went uh, to university study as a student. You studied classical uh, percussion, didn't you? Yes, as you know, uh, in those years there was no jazz yeah. or. Pop education. I know, yes. And I started uh, in my hometown Uh to learn classical percussion. I wanted to know more about what I do. Yes. My teacher, who was the principal of classical percussion in the orchestra in my hometown, asked me if I could play in the orchestra. Beautiful. That's what I did for four years, actually, beside my study program. And I changed later on to Cologne, Mm -hmm. but I still stayed in the orchestra in my hometown. Beautiful. 
and I could make a living out of that, which was great. That is so yeah. amazing. Yeah, Germany is the kind of country, one of the very few countries in the world where you can actually kind of build a career like that yeah. sustainably. I, I'm curious because in my opinion, you know, some of the pedagogical developments you've contributed to in the system are revolutionary. It's their, their history making in Germany. Some of the concepts you've introduced, like body percussion, for example, I, uh, I shouldn't comment on the others because uh, I don't have as much experience, but body percussion, I studied that module. It was one of my majors during my time at the Pop Academy. Yeah, right. And I remember thinking that, you know, finally, this is actually the first time Western pedagogy has imbibed some very timeless methodologies to see rhythm in a more complete angle and not just um, reading music. Yeah. So I'm curious, how did that come about? And is that something you missed as a student? <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, I always, you know, I'm, I'm a lazy guy. You are not a lazy guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have been your neighbor for 10 years. I found out for myself, mm -hmm. a lot of rhythms you should know and have to learn, have a body, how would you say it? Physical aspect. Yeah, if you can play it without thinking, it's the best way to do it. Bingo what we call in German Körpergedächtnis. Muscle memory. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. That keeps the, the rhythm, the groove, the timing in your body. And you don't need your brain for that because it's just there. And I've tried to find out a way for myself how I can easily do it. I found out for myself every groove in every style you could think of and in every tempo has a certain body feel. Yes. Absolutely. This is also true for every instrument. If you're, as you're a keyboardist, among other things, mm -hmm. there are certain riffs and so on, certain styles you, you have to play in a certain way. It's not about your, your mind, you just play it. Absolutely. And that's the way I thought it should be. And I started this actually in the Musikhochschule in Hamburg some 40 years ago, 83, 84. Mm -hmm in those days called Kontaktstudiengang Popularmusik. Study program for popular music was the very first ones in Germany, actually. Mm -hmm. I was proud of that. And we started body percussion and did it by clapping, moving, speaking. Yes. Also starting to learn certain patterns on top, which I found out are kind of very basic and very similar in different cultures. Yes. Like for instance, yeah. this is very similar in all cultures of the world. Indeed. Which Reinhard Flatischler, percussionist from Austria, calls the archetypes of rhythm. If you know these archetypes and these are body language for you, it makes playing very simple. I also found out Konakol, the South Indian rhythm language, which is maybe the most enhanced and complex way to learn rhythms. Right. Uh, but I found out for myself, I need something which is, as a teacher, which is much more simple. It doesn't take for Western people another three years to learn before you start to play your instrument. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I want to thank you personally for me share a story. As you know, I had a conservatory education before I came to the Pop Academy. Yeah. And I remember I uh, it was very interesting because uh, my first years, a lot of my teachers were very surprised at the rhythmic aspects I would implement because I grew up with uh, some Indian rhythmic concepts. Except I flunked my first uh, rhythm <laughs> examination because it was all sight reading. Yeah. 
you know, it was like a different planet. I couldn't understand how this was being called rhythm. <laughs> I remember when I came to your class, it was the first time I, I felt, okay, at least somebody is talking about this. Rhythm is a physical thing. So I guess I'm not that crazy after all. So my question to you is, was there anyone else talking about this inherently physical connection of rhythm? The point I'm trying to make it, I think you're a pioneer. I would argue, and I'm happy to be correct, it's kind of part of music history. It's the first time European pedagogy actually established a system where this other half of rhythm was being addressed. Would you agree? For sure. When I started this, I, I couldn't see anybody. Exactly. Uh, I found out later that Reinhard Flat Tischler did something similar, but I didn't know when I started that. And I'm not sure if I was earlier. Maybe I was earlier a little bit. But so there were people with similar ideas at the same time as it is always. But uh, I had the chance when we started 82, 83 in Hamburg to do it and to, as a teacher to learn by doing. Bingo. And my idea was not to use any kind of written out rhythms or something like that, but to learn it through the body, through the motion, just by listening to what you're doing. It's a kind of a method which I teach up to this day also to our students who are in the educating artist department in the pop academy. Yeah, uh, I personally want to thank you for building on that system. I would also argue as someone who's also studied Conical, I think yours is possibly also more universal. You don't have to study Indian music or get into a very specialized system. The body percussion module is something anyone can get into. It just makes it so extremely organic and so accessible for everyone. Yeah. You're totally right. This was my first focus, as I said before. Mm. It's the same with sight reading, what you were, you were talking about. So European music, especially European classical music, is based also on sight reading a lot. It's visual. It's very visual, yeah. as, as South Indian music is based on Connor call mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. So And in both systems, they are both kind of classical music of the world. Yes. And both have a certain way that you have to learn a lot, uh, basically, before you can start playing. Mm. And uh, what I think is that popular music and also jazz is more about you just play. Yeah. And then you find a way how you want to develop in a certain ways. And this should go hand in hand and not first you have to sight read or first you have to do this. Yeah. You do it at the same time and develop from one place to another, you know. Yeah, analyze later, do first. Thank you for sharing that. Have you ever asked yourself if you need a mentor? Because I'm pretty sure everyone, including me, does. If you struggle to navigate the nuances of your personal artistic goals with the lifestyle of a professional artist, you're not alone. The amount of self-doubt and rejection we deal with in a day is often more than what other professions are confronted with in years. I've been there. So I know. Well, you're starting out on your artistic journey, seeking growth, or just looking to deepen your artistic practice. Mentorship can be the key that unlocks those doors to your potential. I've witnessed the transformative impact of mentorship firsthand on my own artistic journey. My mentors have completely changed my life. And it's time for me to return the gesture. I combine my 20 plus years experience as a professional performing artist and educator 
but my more recent explorations as a certified personal trainer and psychotherapist to offer fellow artists what I call 360-degree mentorship. Not just music lessons, but healthy approaches to artist development, self-care, resilience and clarity in mindsets, relationship building and unpacking limited beliefs to clear up those myths and get the kind of reality check that will shock you with revelations on how much more you're capable of. My mentorship methodologies are designed to give you the tools, guidance and support to define success on your own terms. But don't take my word for it. Go check out www.holisticmusicianacademy.com and read through what the artists I've been working with have to say. You have a remarkable career as a studio and performing artist. Uh, you've played with some of the best in the world. And you suddenly decided to switch to a more, for lack of a better term, teaching career all of a sudden. And I actually remember having this conversation on the train with you where you gave up your first class ticket to come hang with me instead. And I remember you saying that at some point you were bored being a performing and studio musician. Do you want to tell us how that happened? Yeah. Did you feel like you'd reached the ceiling and there was nothing left for you to do? When did that decision to switch your focus onto teaching uh, or mentoring happen and why? Actually, already in a pretty early stage of my music career, I started to teach and I liked it, mm -hmm. actually, mm -hmm. which is also part of it, maybe. So when I moved to Hamburg, I moved to Hamburg in the early 80s, and we started to set up a private drum school in Hamburg mm -hmm. with three young drummers, and I was part of that. And we were very successful with that. So this started my teaching career, actually. I gave some private lessons before, but not. But I did this beside my studio musician's career, right. which I followed up to the 90s. Mm -hmm. Later on, only two years later, I was asked if I could uh, teach on the Musikhochschule in Hamburg. Mm -hmm. And so this was always part of it. In the middle of the 80s, I felt that I had done a lot of studio work with different artists. I was successful with that, mm -hmm. played different kinds of music, but got bored in a certain sense uh, because you play always the same studios. <laughs> You play mostly the same kind of music. Yeah. And I always tried to, to expand my borders and to challenge myself. Mm -hmm. And if I get bored, mm -hmm. then there is no challenge anymore. What I saw is in myself, I'm very interested in teaching and not only in teaching, but also organizing teaching in a certain way uh, yeah. and, and setting this up. So I was asked to set up a, another music school in Hamburg for popular music in 87, 88, which I did beside other things. Mm -hmm. And one thing came to another, you know, like in the 90s, I started to do the very much the same Dinkelsbühl in the small middle-aged town, Dinkelsbühl, mm -hmm. and they asked me to set up a rock and pop department. And I ended up in the in the late 90s with, with doing all these things in different places, in Hamburg, in, in this small town, also given a lot of different courses in different areas mm. and setting this up. There came a day where I thought, and this was already in the 80s, we need kind of a place, a place where musicians can gather and study what they like most which is popular music, and uh, to find each other, to set up their network uh, nationally and internationally, 
and using this as platform for the next step they want to go. And uh, this is what happened then. Actually, I talked to a lot of different people, especially in Germany, but also in the US. How could we make it? What could we do? Mm-hmm. And in the end, you know, like Mannheim, Baden-Württemberg, they wanted to do it. And there were other federal states in Germany also were interested, but didn't make it. Interesting. Did you know when you started off that you'd be making history with the Pop Academy the way it has? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a very good question. I When I wrote my first concept, which was like 85, 86, mm-hmm. a lot of what happened then later on, all the basics, how it works, how it is organized and so on, mm-hmm. were already part And uh, I wrote a lot of different things for myself within the next 20 years from 85 on. Wow. When we had our the, the planning commission for the Pop Academy, which this planning commission took place in uh, 99, I think, something like that, or the early 20, uh, 2000, because we started in 2003 and we had two and a half years of planning commission before mm. And a lot of the things we wrote down in those years were based on my first ideas on one hand, not only on my ideas, there were uh, many people involved, mm-hmm. and also things we tried to progress. And I can tell you, a lot of the things were already written down there, which we could set up within the Pop Academy. But did you know you'd be making the kind of history the Pop Academy has made? I mean, it's it basically was the first educational institute, not just in Germany, but possibly even in Europe, who offered that kind of cutting-edge music education for the first time. Yeah, actually. And your graduates have been Grammy Award winners, and you started from a tiny little school in Hamburg. Yeah. Were you always aiming for that big, or were you just going with the flow and hoping things would take you where they take you? Yeah, you know, like, so this private school in Hamburg... Mm -hmm was kind of, we had 450 students. We have 400 students now in the Pop Academy. So uh, there are certain similarities, Mm. but this was a school not only for professional students, but also for kids and and, uh, younger, but advanced players. And so there are certain similarities, but uh, the focus in the Pop Academy is different. It's on one hand on the arts, on, on the development of young artists mm-hmm. in terms of popular culture, and on the other hand, also the development of young managers in terms of music business. Yes. And, uh, and they work together within the pop economy. This was a totally new approach, actually. Absolutely. It was very futuristic. You, you, it was like tw- almost like 20 years ahead of its time, because now in this day and era, you have to know all of these skills. Yeah. But at the time you started off, most people thought, I just learned to play, play an instrument and that'll be enough. You know, we knew people were freelance musicians mm-hmm. and this didn't change actually, and which was also true already in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and so on. Mm-hmm. You always have a portfolio career. What does this mean? Yeah. Mainly everybody wants to work within own music, his own inspiration, his uh, own output on songs, on, on arrangements and so on. Mm-hmm. This is one focus and this is maybe the most important one. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, as a musician, you can work as a side musician, maybe in famous bands, or you compose, write lyrics, 
do arrangements produced for others. Mm -hmm. And this could be also at the same time when you do your own music or after that or before that or in between, whatever you could think of. The third part is you set up your own enterprise. Yes. You're an entrepreneur, yeah. which is always true also for the first and the second part, but maybe you don't do it alone and have a team of two or three people you can lean on, uh, lean on each other, which makes the living much easier than it would be if you do it on your own. Brilliant. And the fourth one is actually educating all four parts can be part of your life. Mostly it's at least three out of four. And in certain phases, you emphasize on one of these parts. Yes. If possible to do this with your own music, mm -hmm. you're lucky, mm -hmm. which is great. Sometimes it goes on your whole life. Mostly it goes on maybe for two years, three years, four or five years. And then you change and maybe you work for others. And so yes. this is, was kind of what we had in mind from the very first day on. And uh, so the curriculum is built like that. Sometimes, especially the students in the first and second semester, they, oh, it's too much. We, you, mm -hmm. There is too much going <laughs> on remember. at the same time. <laughs> But, as you know, yeah. you find out, yeah, you can need, maybe you need all of this later on. Oh, absolutely. And mostly, you know much better when you have graduated and two years later, you know, ah, oh, it's good, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know that. I no. can confirm that. I remember I had this, I had to choose a module in my second year and I chose artist management at the time. I had no clue why I chose that. It was just something I chose. Mm -hmm. 15 years later, I'm working as an artist coach for one of the top five artist development firms in uh, the US. Yeah. I think back uh, to, to that decision to choose that module. And at the time I was like, why the hell am I doing this? But I you know, had some intuition that it might pay off. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I've learned in the long run. I realize every, every day how well thought out that entire concept and curriculum uh, was designed. Yeah. So thank you again for that. I want to respect your time, Udo. I have a few questions from the audience and I would like to shoot them at you. Yeah, right. Uh, number yeah. one, uh, the stigma against music teachers. I think what they mean is uh, a lot of people think uh, being a music teacher or an um, educator or <laughs> mentor is a failed musician. And you actually have clearly proved that wrong. So any thoughts on this? That's uh, a very great question. I never thought about uh, a teacher as a failed musician. Me neither. I think the perspective goes the wrong way. Mm -hmm. A lot of music teachers first step tried to be soloists, as in classical music, for mm -hmm. instance, and only in the second step teachers. This could also feel as a failure if you're not make it as a soloist. Mm -hmm. But uh, my perspective always was what I said before, the portfolio career is the normal average thing in music. Mm -hmm. And not only in music, any kind of artist can't make a living all his life from just making his own music or her own music. But the other three parts are the same to do, especially the teaching, not for everybody, for a lot of people, could be very, very healthy also for your 
own mindset and I learn a lot from teaching every day. I agree. If I may add something to that, I always found it very confusing because, you know, in the East, the highest honor you kind of bestow upon a musician or an artist is when they start teaching. So it's like the ultimate phase of an artist's career when you start, you know, returning and building a legacy um, on the art you've been practicing. Absolutely. And I always found it a little lopsided. Thank you. Second question. This is re related to what you mentioned earlier on, by the way. I'm going to rephrase it a little. Where is the line between cultural appropriation and cultural embracing, in your opinion? Yep. This is also a very good question. You're totally right. What I think is that if someone really dives deep into a certain culture and uh, tries to find out what it's really about and learn about the music, for instance, or about the culture, then it's more of not embracing. It's just, I, I want to be part of that culture. Mm. And then there is a very thin line also in terms of using other cultures for your own financial benefit. Oh yeah, that's a big one. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And uh, this is something you have to look at it, not on a general perspective, but on on the song and on the music people make. Mm. And you find in history a lot of actually cultural appropriation where people use melodies from other cultures mm. and make a lot of money out of that and, and so on and so on. But overall, culture lives from a change, from, from learning from each other. Yes. Also from what we call leaning on certain traditions or even stealing some some ideas or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. For instance, even if you go back in uh, European music history, mm -hmm. Baroque in the sense of 16th, 17th century music, they all stole from each other, which was normal in those years to use ideas. That's true. These days it's different. We have a copyright mm -hmm. and for sure, you should always mention the source, where it came from. And I think if you start like that and start to give copyrights to the people where it comes from, then it, it's okay. Mm. If not, this is uh, the wrong way of cultural appropriation. That's what I think. But when we go back into the 60s and think of the Rolling Stones, for instance, they were a blues band mm. and they used... Willie Dixon, Muddy Waters, but they were really real blues aficionados. Mm. They, they liked this music and they were kind of deep divers into the blues. And their first records were recorded, including I Can't Get No Satisfaction in the Chess Studio in Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, South Michigan Avenue 2120. Wow. And this was the studio owned by Willie Dixon, the bass player of Muddy Waters, where Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and all these cats recorded. And the Rolling Stones went there because they wanted to have this sound. They worked with these guys, and they were really part of, of the scene. And they also made them famous in the 60s because of their own fame they had in those years. So this is for sure... Uh, for the for the future, heavily to discuss mm -hmm. what is where is this thin line between appropriation and embracing, as you said it. And I, I would think we have to 
discussed more and more to really find a way how we can embrace the situation. I completely agree. I think open discussions is the, is the most imperative aspect to it all, that we really make sure we keep talking. Totally true. Thank you. That was a r really great answer. I have two more questions. You're still good to take them? Yes. This is funny. What is your protein shake? And followed by... Comments on longevity, uh, and because your career spanned what thirty years, forty years, I didn't do the math. Uh, so, what, how, you know, what is your secret? What is the secret to a longevity in a musician's career? I guess. <laughs> also, what's your protein shake? That's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> actually. I don't know. I just do what I do, and uh, I embrace every situation. Actually, mm -hmm. you know that there are always problems on the way but uh, there are more solutions than problems oh beautiful love that i i can confirm uh, i was quasi your neighbor well not next to you where you lived but next <laughs> to the pop academy and you were the first person to enter that building and the last person to leave like i would see you driving in early in the morning and leaving in the middle of the night, your energy levels are through the roof. And that is really, I don't think I know anyone else with your kind of energy levels. Is there something you practice to keep it there? I can't do differently. I just do it like I do it, you know. <laughs> Maybe it's kind of a talent. I don't know, actually. I just. But do you have like a yoga practice? I know you're a, uh, you're a practicing Zen Buddhist. Uh, do you think that has played a role? Your meditation practices, like self-care practices? You know, for me, it's like, I always saw the pop academy as, as kind of an instrument I'm, pl I'm playing nice. and I love playing. And that I love not only playing, but I love to, to work with people and to communicate and to find out the right ideas for a situation and also to convince people and so on and so on. So this is uh, the way I, I live my life, actually, and I love that. Yeah, That's it, maybe, basically. And I can confirm that that is exactly how you actually have done it. The last question, which is actually kind of two questions, is you're finally, quote unquote, retiring. I don't know. I don't see you retiring. Even though, well, at least you're handing over your position. I highly doubt you really retire, but you are handing over your position now as artistic director of the Pop Academy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so how do yes. you plan to enjoy this next phase of your life and any words of wisdom to younger artists and musicians? On one end, so I'm, I'm leaving the Pop Academy in the end of August, actually. Mm -hmm. My uh, successor is uh, Derek von Krog. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a very good producer and uh, 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 at the same time, very good MD and certain in a lot of different situations. He works with Sammy Deluxe, for instance, mm -hmm. as a hip hop producer. Mm -hmm. And he's a great guy for the future. I go back to my freelance uh, status. I, I had before I started the pop economy. Mm -hmm. I will be an advisor for this federal state of Baden-Württemberg for the development of uh, pop music, pop culture within the federal state mm -hmm. for the future for the next one and a half years as a new program, which is called Popland, Dialog Popkultur. It's a, it's a conference system and we will find out what should be the next steps for the next 10 to 20 years. Um, we had something very similar 20 years ago. And one of the outcomes was the Pop Academy, and the other outcome was the Pop Bureau, Baden-Württemberg Pop Bureau Stuttgart. Mm -hmm. And 
hopefully we will, we will find new ways how to do it. What I think is that artists in this country, especially professional artists, need more support on any scale we could think of. I will be part of that. So I will be advisor at the same time. I go on to do my own podcast, uh, Acclaimer Pop at the SWR radio station. Amazing. And have several other ideas, maybe also some more music, which I had to, to leave out for the last 20 years. Beautiful. We wish you all the very best for that. I have one last question, if I may, if you have two minutes for me. Yes. How was um, your experience during the pandemic as a um, teacher teaching online? And what are your views on online music education? Do you think we are headed into a phase where it will become more standard format or is hybrid the future? Or what are your views on online education generally? Yes, as we all know, the pandemic was really a challenging situation. Mm. Actually, we were pretty good managing this because early days of March of 2020, pandemic started in Germany. Summer term starts in the end of March, beginning of April. Mm -hmm. And we had three weeks uh, to prepare. Yeah. And uh, actually, we set up a whole system within these three weeks and we could do nearly everything but not band coach which is not possible yeah. online yeah. Uh, in yeah, terms yeah. of playing together yes. so but anything else could be done and we were pretty good on that i think in the moment you know there is a kind of a slashback so everybody thinks yeah we have to meet and blah 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 and in the moment nobody thinks about online education mm -hmm. but for the future, I think, because there are also some good parts of it, mm -hmm. especially in terms of songwriting camps, for instance, and team teaching on the internet and international teaching on the internet, mm -hmm. uh, which is very, very successful. Mm -hmm. And this will come back sooner or later. On one hand, because you always could have teachers from New York or from Mumbai or wherever you go, mm. And they don't have to fly. Yes. They, they can be part of your curriculum. Yes. This is one part. And the other part is uh, in certain circumstances, international songwriting camps are also possible on this kind of scale. If you have the right plugins and uh, software with you that you can use. And this could be, in certain cases, much more interesting and successful than if you do it in one place, which is interesting. And for sure, this is also part of the perspective for the future. I could think of like 20 to 30 percent of the curriculum could be online. Again, I think this will come up maybe next year already, not only in the pop academy, but maybe also in other uh, universities. Thank you so much. That was a really, really interesting insight into it all. I noticed, by the way, hats off to the way the Pop Academy switched online. I think you were one of the quickest uh, transitioners during that phase. I was uh, really impressed, needless to say, in the manner in which everything switched. I actually went to university as well. I did an online degree too, even though I tried to be on campus every now and then in London. And I can confirm your prediction on how that will play a role too. I, I only work remotely now. Uh, I work for Cyber PR in New York, yes. never on location. These are uh, job opportunities or generally practice opportunities we couldn't have thought of even like 10 years back yeah. unless you were really out of your time. 
I want to respect your time, Udo. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, TL. I really enjoyed talking to you. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out in.